Right, and invariably the guest goes, are we recording? Oh, can we try that? And I'll say, are we recording? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, Gita, uh, I think you just started us recording. So. <laughs> Welcome back to The Curbsiders. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls. So I've and, heard. And practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Hello, Matthew. How are you doing today? Good. I'm glad you could come and join us for this uh, wonderful intro. I know. Uh, I know. Unfortunately, Stuart, uh, Stuart was not available That's during right. the recording of this. Which uh, I had a might flat have, tire. which probably avoided a lot of inappropriate comments, but we're still I, upset that you weren't there. Yeah, no, I, I, I was listening to the recording live. Unfortunately, I had so many comments I wanted to add. <laughs> All the awkward pauses that would have been me adding those comments in. Yes, I can imagine. Yes, uh, if you want to edit it and go back and add them in, you know, I'm be my not guest. sure if I have that technical savvy. Paul, uh, are you there? I think we the, kind of forgot yep. to introduce you. I drifted in and out. I barely paid attention. And uh, Dr. Paul Williams. Good old hi Paul. Guys. Okay. Hi, guys. <laughs> Good old me. Great to be here. <laughs> okay, guys. I did, uh, keeping with our new tradition, I did want to read a, a nice email we got from a listener, Camillo. I won't read your last name, but... Uh, Camilla said, first of all, great show. You have helped me expand my knowledge and adjust my practice in many areas. I listen to your podcast as I'm commuting and will off as I'm commuting and will often re-listen to a podcast several times to make sure I get all the points. I will often refer to old podcasts and your show notes. Regarding your website, now that you have so many shows, would it be possible to have an index of podcasts so we can quickly find and jump to an episode? Well, it's interesting that you ask that, Camillo. Yes, Camillo. Uh, thank <laughs> well, you for providing that segue. That's right. Just for you. <laughs> uh, we have added a list of episodes to the website, as well as a search feature, as well as some really handsome pictures of Paul and Stuart, because we got a lot of requests for those. Sure, And right. uh, we will be periodically adding the Mostly website. Mostly from Paul and Stuart. <laughs> And for our most, uh, one of our recent episodes, Stuart drew a wonderful uh, hypothalamus and uh, thalamus, pituitary, whatever. Wait a second. Pituitary. He drew the HPT axis. So check that out. (laughs) You put that picture up there. (laughs) Getting to the topic of today's show, as Stuart discovers his fancy artwork (laughs) on our website. Our guest for this episode, Paul, could you tell us a little bit about why uh, we, we are doing this topic? Uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis? Uh, well, we're doing it because we are excellent internists and it's a relevant topic that we should be all be fully cognizant of. But I think more specifically because I uh, happen to work with, with the great Dr. Gina Simoncini, who's been sort of an early advocate and expert in pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so uh, being the selfish soul I am, I just take advantage of the resources that I have and we, we sort of ask her to talk to us and educate us a little bit further. Yeah, and this is I a love topic. How poetic it is when you talk, Paul. <laughs> it just that's flows. Because, I think that's because he just uh, crushes the literature, so it just it's comes out be. that way, Paul. Uh, but I, I do think this is an important topic. As I as I mentioned at some point during the show, this is now being tested on boards. More importantly, this is doing? something that this is something that you sh- that that the general internist can be doing. Gina kind of gives us the knowledge needed to be able to counsel patients and to use this and. I think it will be helpful to your practice, especially if you're practicing in areas where uh, you have high-risk patients. 
So our guest on this episode, Dr. Gina Simon-Seedy, is an associate professor of medicine at Temple University Hospital, where she also attended medical school, residency, and spent a year as chief resident. Dr. Simon-Seedy then went on to complete an HIV fellowship at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. She's recently completed her master's of public health at Temple University. Her interests include HIV care, the treatment of hepatitis C, women's health, and LGBT. Paul, you put too many letters in here for me. LGBTQ care. Two of the curbsiders consider Dr. Simon Seedy to be a mentor, and so we are especially happy to have her on the show. Hey, hey, Matt. Yes? I've got to be honest. Go on. I did not prep for this episode. <laughs> okay. I'll give you that. That's pretty good. <laughs> Glad we got Sean Mike for that. <laughs> totally worth it. So, uh, Gina, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right in with the first question. If okay. you have to, if you had to give a one liner to describe yourself, kind of the way that we do in the hospital, what would it be? Um, I'm a general internist that practices HIV and hepatitis C. Okay, and tell us a little bit more, like. What do you do outside of medicine or what's, you know, a little bit more about yourself? So I really like to garden. So I um, started a veggie garden at, um, we have a vacation house in New Jersey at the Jersey Shore and um, started first with tomatoes. And now my husband has built two raised bed gardens. And so we now call it the farm. And so that is basically how I spend a lot of my weekend time. And then here um, during the week, and it's not summertime, I have um, a flower perennial garden here that I kind of tend to. I like to bike ride. I like to do yoga. I feel like this is going up on a dating profile. Uh, I will, I, like uh, I will forward emails. Uh, you know, if anyone would like to date Gina, um, I'm pretty sure she's married, but uh, I will still forward her your requests. Well, uh, I actually, gardening is a big thing that I would like to do when I, uh, when I move, when I move out of Texas back to Pennsylvania soon, garden, starting a garden is a big thing that I want to do. Just because oh, I'm yeah, secret for the moon and miss you're still among the stars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just secretly worried there's going to be an apocalypse and that I'm going to need to know how to grow my own food. That's mm. that's a big part of it. But you you can grow a lot though, right? These things produce like uh, the, my family members that have them are like trying to give away vegetables because they they have more than they can eat. Oh yeah, are it's they totally farmers? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, these I'm talking just like a twelve by twelve plot in their in their backyard, and they they produce a lot. Yeah, I'll tell you the easiest thing that that if anybody's looking to grow something is basically garlic. You get a bunch of garlic, you put it in the ground in September, like when kids go to school, you pull it up around July 4th in, you know, in the mid-Atlantic states and you have garlic for the whole year. I mean, it is it's like planting a bulb and you can't mess it up. So, if you're looking to do something easy peasy, I would start there. And then um those little like grape tomatoes and um those little salad tomatoes, they grow like a weed. So they will easily take over whatever little veggie plot of land that you have if you're just trying to start out. That would be where I would start. Okay. And this, this, is, a, this is a new first for us, Paul, I think, talking, <laughs> talking about gardening on the show. But I'm, I'm, I'm way into it. We've I talk- feel like we could probably just skip the pre-exposure prophylaxis and let's just, <laughs> just really spend some dwell time on the garlic and the cherry tomatoes. We're talking about wellness, right? We're talking yeah. about making sure you get your, your veggies yeah. in. And, and Gina, if, if you, I mean, tell me, tell me you also own chickens because then that's like no, my no. whole dream. 
own no, chickens no, 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 and no, grow no. my own vegetables. That's really fresh eggs from the chicken that day. That's like, I probably should have been a farmer. Well, Paul, uh, did you have any more relevant questions that you wanted to ask Gina um, up front here? No, no, please. I, you're, I'd like to hear more about your fully at, and easily attainable dreams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gina, let's, let's move into some more relevant territory here. I feel that you have given me some very, you've, so for the audience, Gina is someone that I've worked with for, well, I've known for what, six years now, Gina, from when I was a very impressionable, uh, second intern intern, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and she has kind of been a mentor to me and helped influence my decision whether or not I should do a fellowship, which I know is something that is something that I, here's my theory on fellowships and Gina, you tell me. I feel like in medicine, a lot of people know they want to go into medicine from the time they're either in high school or college, and it's a long road. So you kind of just like, you constantly have more training and plans ahead of you. And people in medicine have a lot of trouble saying, okay, my training has stopped. Now I'm going to go out into the world and be a doctor. And Gina sort of helped me realize that because I was considering multiple fellowships. You could argue that I didn't really need them. Uh, Gina, what do you what do you think, and what's your advice to the audience as as far as how they should approach whether they should go for more training, whether they're a physician or or a nurse or PA, anyone that's going to go for extended training? I come from a perspective of a little bit of unconventionality, if that's an even a word. Paul, is that a word? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, from my my perch of the world, I I think that if you're going to do a fellowship, it has to you really have to kind of start with what you want to do. And so if you really want to be a geriatrician and run a nursing home and develop a great geriatrics program in a local hospital or, you know, be the geriatrician that's teaching residents, go for it. But I think sometimes we get a little nervous when we're finishing up internal medicine residency or family medicine or even pediatrics sort of about what's the next step. I think there are many of us, myself included, who are very nervous to publicly announce that we're interested in doing general internal medicine or general pediatrics. And, um, you know, I think it's important to kind of figure out what you want to do, but also recognize that your first job isn't your forever job and that what you eventually get involved with as your career progresses isn't going to be something that you know immediately when you finish residency. Residency is training. And then there's the rest of your life to sort of develop niches and develop your career focus. And it's easy to go into New England Journal and say, okay, geriatrics jobs. It's much harder to say, I want a job where I can do podcasting, but still make a decent income to take care of my four kids. Yeah. I feel like this is vaguely about me, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Paul, I know you have maybe some slightly differing views on this whole thing, but you have not yet done a fellowship. So do you have any comments, concerns? I mean, I I think that's a fair point. I think it's, it's easier if you know, like Gina said all along what you want to do with yourself and you should not use, you should not pursue a fellowship as, uh, necessarily as time to extend you figuring out what you're going to do with your life. So it's, it should not be sort of a reflex to panic or uncertainty. So I, I think that's all a fair point. Um, I would say it's probably as time progresses after you get out of, say, just an internal medicine residency, I would imagine it's probably harder to go back and pursue a fellowship should something capture your interest. 
but uh, I think it's going to be very, very variable from person to person. So I don't think you can sort of broadly apply um, career planning right. um, just because everyone's life goals are going to be are very so dramatically, as Gina had pointed out. But I do think that part of the problem is, is that most trainees are only really exposed to subspecialties like rheumatology, endocrine, whatever. They're never really exposed to IT stuff like doing um, any type of informatics, for example, really little exposure to doing any of the business of medicine, hospital administration, um, you know, very selective exposures to um, you know, even sort of running a business or doing, you know, insurer based type of things where you could basically um, work with insurance plans to do population health management. And so I think that there's way more out there in terms of careers and options than we really allow residents exposure to because we're basically exposing them to like hospital based specialties. And there's more to that. Right. So I my advice to the listeners, which is kind of what Gina had given me is if, if you are going to decide to give up a couple of years of your life for fellowship, even if it's just one year, make sure that you have thought through that the one year of my life is worth whatever increase in pay or whatever variety of patient that I'm going to see or whatever skill I need to learn. And that the only way for me to get there is to give up this time because otherwise, in my opinion, it, it's not worth it. And ultimately that's why, I am not going into a fellowship when I leave my current job, and that's why I'm trying to spend more time on podcasting and medical education. And I would encourage you to have the same discussion with yourself. So it's all my fault. It's well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're kind I, of a fellowship killer. I've seen it in action. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think uh, Gina. I'll try one more question on you before we move on to the main event. Hey, okay. Stuart's not here, but I'll ask his favorite question. Can no, you... <laughs> I don't like these questions. <laughs> Could you tell us something about yourself that we will never forget? <sighs> um, yes, I have a story. So a couple of years ago, my husband and I um, were in, on vacation in India, and we were sort of, you know, stretching our legs a little bit with the food. And um, we, were, we were in this one town called Udaipur, and we decided we wanted to try street food in India. And so I bought this amazing samosa, best samosa of my life, shared it with my husband. We're walking down the streets in this like small town. I think they liken it to like the Venice of India and um, less canals, but kind of as beautiful. And so, you know, you're in India, so, you know, kind of narrow, crowded streets, lots of people. And so you see livestock on the street, not a big deal. So I'm walking down the street, sharing the samosa with my husband, walk by a cow who headbutts me. And oh I, you know, first you, you sort of get used to the fact that, you know, there's cows on the street and, you know, whatever. But then I literally got a how like, you know, headbutted for this samosa from this cow. I couldn't believe it. And he and stole then, course, the samosa? Yes. And then the day goes on worse because, you know, we're hiking, we're going to see all these, you know, beautiful statues and everything. And I start to develop like a little bit of like GERD or what I thought was Uh GERD and (laughs) then develop the worst travelers gastroenteritis of my life. Um, So the lesson of the day is don't buy street food in India. (laughs) Don't walk by it with don't walk by any food near a cow who's also hungry for your vegetarian samosa and um, make sure you have Pepto when you travel. That's my plan. I feel like our audience probably should already know not to eat street food in India, but if you don't, that is, that's very good advice. I think I, uh, 
the best. I mean, you go to other places and you, I mean, it's the best food around. You'd still recommend the trip to India though. Is that the, Absolutely. Okay. and I still recommend that samosa because it was the best one I've ever had in my life. But you know, maybe if you had taken like, uh, what is, is Cipro, is Cipro the, for, uh, the Cipro work for traveler's diarrhea? I'm showing my ignorance, but yeah, maybe you should have just taken Cipro like a half hour before and you would have been okay. I don't That's know. That's a plan. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we are talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean for that transition, but that is perfect. Uh, Gina, um, why don't we start talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis? So we always ask up front, like if you had to write like a short paragraph on pre-exposure prophylaxis for Wikipedia, what would that sound like? Pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP, is um, very similar to post-exposure po- prophylaxis, also known as PEP. And basically what it is, is a biomedical and behavioral intervention that involves taking an antiretroviral medication, an HIV antiretroviral medication, um, that is a combo pill of tenofovir and tricytabine daily to prevent acquisition of HIV. Is this being done widespread across the country? And is this now, is this now standard of care? I know it's starting to be tested on board exams, and so people definitely need to be aware of it for that. But- for in a general primary care practitioner's office, is this something that's expected for them to be doing? I think the general primary care practitioner is the place to do this. You know, HIV prevention has come a long way. And, you know, for the first time in many years, we actually have a decrease in HIV, new infections in the United States. And so, you know, that number has held steady for a long time, which I think presents a conundrum to us, which is that, you know, condoms are not always being used. And so we do need to make sure that patients have all available HIV prevention options. And so, you know, there are a lot of patients who find it difficult to talk to a physician about their sex life and about, you know, trying to reduce risk. And so I think this is one of those hand on the door, hand on the door conversations that we as physicians sort of need to bite the bullet and kind of preempt. So just as much as we try to introduce conversations about erectile dysfunction with men because they're embarrassed or urinary incontinence with women because they're embarrassed to bring it up. I think that this is also a conversation that we need to have with our patients and start talking about sex a little bit more often. And I think, you know, sexual lives of patients really change over the course of their lifetime. And so what their sex life was at the time of their initial HMP might be vastly different. And so when you're doing a routine screening for an STD panel, or they come in and say, hey, doc, I want an STD panel, that's a great opportunity to bring up PrEP. When you're having this conversation, like what what sort of patient factors or what kind of things sort of get you to start thinking about actually offering pre-exposure prophylaxis. So what well, patients trigger that thought? If I may just break in and I, I this will, if, if you could answer Paul's question, maybe if you could give a case example, like I think it would be, it would be helpful if you can give us an example of like a patient that said something or that you saw that you thought, okay, this person I think is a, is a candidate for pre-exposure prophylaxis and kind of go through how you counsel that person and how you approached it. I think that would be, would, would be useful. Let's take Paul's question first. So how do you sort of introduce this topic? So the way you introduce the topic also is a little dependent upon who's who's sort of recommended to have PrEP. And so let's kind of 
take another step back and talk about what the guidelines are. And so there are basically three groups of patients that are recommended to um, have at least a discussion about PrEP and then to maybe initiate PrEP. And so the first big group of people are sexually active men who have sex with men, which I usually refer to as MSMs, um, who don't consistently use condoms. And then within that subgroup of the MSM population, if any of them have a, a sexual partner that is living with HIV, then that actually kind of elevates them as a priority. Then you have um, heterosexually active um, men and women who are not consistently using condoms. And then, again, as a subgroup to them, if there are any partners of positives, they're even a high priority for PrEP. And then the last group are people who are actively injecting drugs and and or sharing needles and some of the drug injection equipment. So they're like the, the big, large groups of people who um, are recommended to initiate PrEP if they're if the patients are interested. So primary care clinic um, office and you are talking about PrEP, how do you bring it up? So let's say, I think this is a normal scenario. You have a 20-year-old guy coming into the clinic as a new patient visit because he needs his driver's license form filled out so he can get a learner's permit. So first time to your visit, you're actually doing a full HMP. Turns out that he is a young MSM and is not consistently using condoms, is asking for STD screening while he's here just to kind of kill two birds with one stone. And so I think that that's a perfect opportunity to bring up PrEP because by and large, patients are unaware of PrEP. And I, I so, wanted to ask, yeah. and I'm sorry, but when you, and you may have said this already, but when you said going back to the guidelines, whose who's guidelines for PrEP? Yep, so these are the CDC guidelines from 2014. Okay, thank you. Who's a patient that sticks out in your head, maybe one that you've seen recently that, that you saw and you implemented PrEP, and like, what did that discussion go like when you were bringing it up with the patient? So the, I actually just had a patient on Friday that is on PrEP. He's been on PrEP for about two years, and so he is the partner. He's the male partner of a patient of mine who's living with HIV, and they're interested in conceiving a child. And so he's basically taking PrEP daily. She's on her antiretrovirals they are actively pursuing pregnancy. And so basically how that happened is I was actually talking to her in a visit months ago, years ago, and she told me that she was interested in conception. He's negative. So um, she, we referred him to come to me in our prep clinic, which is basically um, an internal referral clinic within internal medicine. So I'm like the consultant prep person for the residents and for the faculty. And um, we have him on PrEP and they're going through fertility treatments and trying to naturally conceive. So for him, he's a history of prediabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And so with him, we sort of did baseline labs and decided if he was eligible and then did a lot of counseling about the, the whys that we were recommending this. And so by himself as a, a person who's a partner, it's recommended to be on PrEP, but then also because they're trying to naturally conceive, obviously not use condoms to have pregnancy, um, was the secondary reason for him to be on PrEP. And is his wife on full full heart therapy? She is on heart therapy, yep. And she's undetectable. Okay. She had um, a diagnosis of age. Wow. So this is that's kind of incredible to me that yeah. that somebody HIV positive they they had AIDS now they're 
now their disease is controlled and they're still taking it and it's and and for the pregnancy is is this is there are there major safety concerns for for being on heart therapy or for the father being on the for prep so it's a good question so we have been using these medications for women who are living with HIV and currently undergoing pregnancy. And so as to date, there aren't any adverse uh, effects or adverse consequences of, pa- of patients who are pregnant being on the medications that we use for PrEP, which right now are tenofovir and emtricitabine. There is a pregnancy registry that we you know, can basically record and report any issues but to date, there hasn't been any, and there haven't been any issues with breastfeeding either. So it's safe to breastfeed with the medications as well. I wanted to talk about you. You said that you you screened this gentleman. So this gentleman came in. His wife, his wife, her levels are undetectable, but he needs he needs to be on prep. They're going to be conceiving. What testing did you do for him to make sure that he was a candidate, and what would make him not a candidate? Baseline testing is really to have an HIV test within a week of starting treatment. And so I'm going to talk about the testing in a minute, but um, basically an HIV status within a week of initiation of PrEP. Um, We also check the creatinine clearance of the patient because PrEP is recommended for a creatinine clearance of greater than 60 mLs per minute. We also check hepatitis B serologies because the medications that we use for PrEP, including tenofovir, specifically tenofovir, is also active against hepatitis B. And so if there's any undiagnosed chronic hepatitis B, it's important to know that from the get-go because tenofovir will also be treating hepatitis B. And so the importance of that is if a patient cycles on and off PrEP for whatever reason, um, they could uh, technically have an opportunity to have a flare of hepatitis as a result of coming off the medication that was using to treat hepatitis B. So it's basically HIV status, creatinine clearance, hepatitis B serologies, and then at the same time to do an STI, sexually transmitted infection screening. And so this is a good opportunity to remind all your listeners that we really need to screen every sexual orifice that's being used. And so this includes an oral swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia, a rectal swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia, as well as a catch for urine um, or a vaginal swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, syphilis, so using RPR for screening, unless you do the reverse algorithm, and then hepatitis C screening for patients who are um, MSM because there is sexual transmission of hepatitis C. For the for the GC and chlamydia screening, rectal, oral, is there any spe- I mean, usually I'm sending just the urine probe for patients. Are there what's spe- is there a special swab that you need to be using? for each site? And like, is that something that clinics would just have around or they, people are going to have to stock these specifically? Yes, that's a good question. There's no technical oral swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia. We use the vaginal urethral swabs for oral and uh, rectal. Okay. So I think the swab that we use, am I allowed to use commercial names here? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, so the swab that we use is the Aptima swab. So it's basically the Aptima um, vaginal and urethral gonorrhea and chlamydia swab. So it would be the same swab that you would use to do a pap smear if you don't have it all in within your pap liquid. The oral swab is basically what you would do with like a strep swab. So same areas. 
And then um, the rectal swab is basically the white part of the Q-tip just sits in basically in the anal sphincter. You don't have to go far up. You just have it sit there for 10 to 30 seconds and you'll be able to have the diagnosis. I can't can't say that I have done those tests, uh, but I'm sure in the new place where I'm practicing, uh, this stuff is going to be a lot more more relevant than it is in our current population. Where I'm I'm ba- I'm basically in a geriatrics clinic right now. Maybe I'm just not being ex- uh, you know. Maybe you have to talk about sex more. I think I probably do. I keep waiting for like, was it Scrubs where like they had that, they had like the outbreak of like STDs among the nursing home residents. Yeah. And uh, I just, I've, I've been waiting to diagnose an ST, STD in like an 80 year old, but I just haven't. So Gina, after the initial screening, you prescribed the prep. <laughs> what kind of ongoing monitoring do you do after you've actually, after you've started the therapy for a patient? Even before you have the initiation, it's really important to discuss a couple of things. And so um, I'm going to answer your question in a second. So basically, when you are thinking about initiating PrEP, it's really important to encourage adherence. So patients need to understand that PrEP is only as good as if they take it. And so there, we have a lot of data from a bunch of different studies that are that have been published that have demonstrated that if PrEP is taken every day as prescribed, it's a 92% reduction in HIV transmission. That obviously isn't what the real world is. And so real world usage of PrEP probably reduces the transmission to about 40 to 50%. So to really maximize your the, the risk reduction, it needs to be taken on a, on a daily basis. So that's the first thing to make sure that patients are able to do. And sometimes um, kind of life coaching to help them to plan out how to do that, especially if they're young, is really important. The other thing that's important at the time of initiation is really helping the patients to plan for common adverse effects because it's nothing like giving a medication to a patient, they take it twice and then they develop some bizarro side effect and that's it, that was your opportunity. So we found that if patients are aware of what the side effects are and kind of can game plan for them, they're more apt to basically take the medication on a regular basis. So the common adverse effects of tenofovirum tricytabine are nausea, flatulence, and headache. And those side effects usually go away within usually a month, but most of the time within a week for most patients. So if patients know to expect that, know that it's self-limiting, that they can usually suffer through a week, sometimes patients have no side effects. So that way they can actually take the medications regularly and be with good adherence. So then Paul, are these yeah. like the, I know, sorry to break in, uh, and this is again, my ignorance on the topic. Some of the older agents for HIV had the uh, lipoatrophy, like the kind of the, they would get the buffalo hump and the, the cheeks, like they'd lose fat in their cheeks. Do they get that with the prep? I think what you're referring to is lipodystrophy. With lipodystrophy. The, the, with um, the, the fat loss in the face. Tenofovir and emtricytabines are nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And so they belong to the same class of drugs that did actually develop a lot of lipodystrophy. Then they are newer generation of these of those medications, of that class of, of medications. And so they don't cause lipoatrophy, lipodystrophy at the same rate as what we were used to with um, say AZT and some of the older nukes. So it's not it's not really a concern. I haven't seen in my own practice, patients developing lipodystrophy from this generation of nukes. And these are just kind of like one dose, set it and forget it? Like just, this that's is it? one pill once a day. 
and there's no alternative regimen. Like if someone has CKD, it's like, sorry, you can't get prep. Oh, you are asking so many good questions. Still haven't answered Paul. Paul, it's still there. I'm <laughs> That's gonna okay. Get Keep him hanging. Sorry, I drifted off for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Tenofovir um, which is commercially known as Truvada, is a medication that for PrEP is recommended for creatinine clearances of greater than 60. There is um, a couple of issues with this drug that have come out, and two of them um, are basically renal toxicity and then bone toxicity. When patients are taking tenofovir long-term for the treatment of HIV, they have increasing risk of renal toxicity. So worsening kidney function can be something as bizarre and rare as Fanconi syndrome to just a rise in creatinine. And we know that we have patients that are living longer with HIV, developing diabetes, hypertension on other nephrotoxic um, medications that can kind of compound and cause kidney issues over a lifetime. We also know that tenofovir can cause bone mineral density loss. That And both of these issues, bone mineral density loss and renal toxicity, are all reversible with cessation of the drug. And when I say renal toxicity, I'm talking about like, you know, change of creatinine, maybe 10%, maybe even creatinine clearance changing by like maybe two. So we're not talking about anything dramatic. And in fact, the guidelines basically say to continue the medication unless the creatinine clearance goes under 60. So that's the background to the some of the, the bio um, side effects. So your question is, is there anything else we can try? So there's a newer version of tenofovir. So the tenofovir that's in the current PrEP is actually TDF, which is tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. And um, there's a newer version of that drug called TAF, which is tenofovir alafenamide fumarate, which basically is the prodrug of TDF that doesn't cause as many um, renal issues. We don't know if that drug works as PrEP yet. And so there is an ongoing trial that is enrolling called the DISCOVER trial to basically get patients in to see if that medication works just as well. And are we finally ready for Paul's question? I don't remember what I asked, to be honest with you. <laughs> Paul, you asked about monitoring. Oh, Gina remembers. That's perfect. So, <laughs> No, I remember too. Yeah, so Dr. Simon Simoncini, talk to us a little bit about what sort of monitoring you're doing after you prescribe prep. Yeah, so after your baseline uh, testing that you do, usually you um, have the patients come back. I usually say... I have patients come back within a month and when they first get started on treatment, just to check in, see how they're doing, make sure that um, we're talking about harm reduction. So using condoms or choosing sexual behaviors that are lower risk than others and um, basically see how they're handling the side effects and how they're doing with adherence. So I usually have the first visit, they come back in a month. That might be shorter for the type of patients that you're taking care of. I know some of my colleagues who are taking care of adolescents will have them come back within a week um, just because they need a little bit more TLC. So you kind of have to feel out your population and also obviously your access. So at that first visit, it's really just a chat, see how they're doing, life coach, how to take medicines every day. But every three months, it's absolutely important to see patients to assess again their adherence, see how they're doing with their risk behaviors. Are they using drugs while they're having sex? That might not be something that's good for prevention of HIV because we tend to not necessarily make the best decisions while high. And then usually at that three-month visit, we do a creatinine clearance check. And then 
this is not recommended by the CDC necessarily, but um, I actually do an STD check every three months in these patients just because of the high rates of STIs during this whole situation. And then uh, I also assess whether or not the patient wants to continue. So in the last three months, has their sex life changed? Have they broken up with whomever they were having sex with and now don't need to be on PrEP? Do they, have they become involved in a different relationship? Are they, you know, stepping back a little bit? So you kind of have to assess where they are and decide if you need to continue on. And then you only write a prescription for a total of 90 days. So, you know, only give three real refills at a time. And so usually at that three month visit, you're also doing an HIV test just to make sure there has been no seroconversion in the meantime. And then at the six month visit, you can do another STD check. And so that's really when the CDC recommends to do STI screening is at that visit. And then every six months from there, you can do a creatinine clearance. So it's basically every six months do a creatinine clearance and STI check. We have at our population have so much renal toxicity in terms of comorbidities of our patients that I tend to do creatinine clearances every three months. I do STI screening every three months and HIV screening every three months. Well, I guess my question, this sounds fairly labor intensive. Are you pretty much focusing like the whole visit on prep if if that's what they're there for? Because if you're going to be doing counseling and or do you have physician extenders that you're using to kind of like help with some of the, the, the screening or do you have questionnaires you hand out? How do you handle that? I have a pharmacist that I work with who is a clinical specialist in infectious diseases. And so I actually have him do in between visits too. So I might wind up seeing the patients every six months for prep visits and he does the opposite every six months. So the patient's still coming in every three months but um, not necessarily seeing me if they're stable. And we have a pretty good collaborative practice agreement in the state of Pennsylvania where he can order labs for patients and then just route me the chart so I can do refills. And Gina, you'd mentioned, I mean, it sounds like part of the monitoring is, is fairly intensive STI screening. And I guess sort of one of the theoretical concerns is there might be behavioral compensation for patients that are on PrEP. So maybe engaging in higher risk behaviors than if they were not taking the medication. Has that been borne out uh, in the literature? Is there a higher rate of STIs or... So we don't really know. I'm, I'm going to just be honest with you. So some of the data demonstrates that the patients who are on PrEP are um, also ha- would also have high risk of STD acquisition anyway, because sure. before PrEP got ruled out, we were actually seeing higher rates of um, sexually transmitted infections. And so they might just be a high risk population and they're also on PrEP. We kind of can't figure that out just yet. Um, we do know that patients who are on PrEP are getting screened more frequently. And so a lot of the infections that are getting caught while they're on PrEP are usually asymptomatic infections. So part of this might also be that we're screening more often and so we're picking more of them up. So jury's still out about whether or not we're actually seeing more STIs while people are on PrEP. Is it, so it's not like they, they misunderstand that being on PrEP makes them like bulletproof to, to sexually transmitted infections. That's kind of what I thought Paul was getting at. But maybe, it, like you said, it, mean, it makes sense that these, these patients are very high risk. That's why they're on PrEP. So would they have been getting sexually transmitted infections anyway? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because HIV does carry a lot of stigma in certain communities still. But, you know, I've met a lot of young people within the last few years who are kind of unperturbed by HIV, like, you know, HIV, it's treatable, I can take a medicine now. And I think the 
perception and, you know, the worry about this isn't the same in some of the younger generations as there as there is or was in, you know, people who grew up in the 80s and the 90s. When PrEP was initially conceptualized or, or being studied, wasn't there a big concern, or maybe there still is, about resistance, like breeding resistant strains of HIV? Because if patients are non-adherent to their PrEP therapy, then it's kind of like someone not finishing their antibiotic course. Yeah, there have been very few resistance cases that have come out. There there are, I would say, less than five. There was one a couple of months ago that was reported um, that are directly from the partner of the patient who was on PrEP. So there have been infections that have been reported of HIV, but a lot of times it's when you actually do genotyping, you find out that there was other partners involved than, let's say, the partner's partner that might have HIV. So what I'm saying is if you're in a serodiscordant relationship, one person's positive, one person's negative, the negative person picks up HIV, they're able to genotype if that HIV is from their positive partner. And so in most of those cases, there was actually additional sexual partners that were involved, and that's how HIV was picked up. So, and you're coming from a place of of patient advocacy and harm reduction. Um, I guess my question is, for patients who are fairly non-adherent uh, with the PrEP and sort of take it very intermittently, like how how do you handle that? And, and what is sort of your threshold for discontinuation? I am a bleeding heart. <laughs> so I, I don't really have a hard and fast line for discontinuation. I think that it's all about education and trying to work with patients and meet them where they are to um, get it to work for them with the understanding that if they're able to take it as much as possible, that is more reduction of risk than doing nothing. So if the option is no condoms, have sex, no prep, that is risk. Whereas if they take their prep a couple of times a week, it's not 92% risk reduction, but it's definitely better than having sex without condoms and without prep. Well, Gina, I think we're kind of running to the end here. So I'd like to ask you for your take-home points, unless Paul has any other burning questions. I don't mean that as a pun, (laughs) Uh, but you could take it as that. Stuart just walked in, and he's clearly (laughs) taking that as a pun. (laughs) Okay. Fix that in post, too. Yeah, no, I think the other burning question um, is I'm not sure that we touched on is, are insurance companies paying for PrEP? Are you having issues getting it paid for? Yes, that's a good question. So in the state of Pennsylvania, um, the Medicaid, uh, all the Medicaids are covering PrEP for a dollar. So there's a dollar copay. The private insurers and the HMOs of the world can sometimes give a little bit of a problem. So sometimes a prior authorization is needed, but by and large, it's covered. I usually use the diagnosis HIV exposure um, because there's no you know, PrEP diagnosis that you can use right now. And we actually have copay cards that are from the drug manufacturers that you can provide to patients to cover like $4,200 per year for copays. And then for patients who still have difficulty, um, there's actually a patient assistance program for full coverage of these drugs if uh, they're uninsured or if they have other you know, overwhelming life issues like being undocumented and things like that. Okay, Gina. So let's let's for the take home points. Let's say that I am a primary care provider. I'm about to hang a shingle in let's North Philadelphia, and I want to start prescribing prep. What are the most important things that I need to remember uh, as take home points for the listeners? 
I think the first thing is to really have it in your mind, especially for young people and then people who are partners of patients living with HIV. And then secondarily, for patients who are having changing life circumstances, going through a divorce, maybe there was infidelity, asking for STD screening, have an STD that you are telling them about, you know, these are all patients that you should be thinking about with PrEP. I guess my second take home is to make sure that you are talking to patients about adherence and making sure that they realize that it's only as good as if they take it every day. And I think the third issue is really just making sure that you're doing routine STI and HIV screening, and I would say at baseline and every three months, and then along with creatinine clearance too. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Paul, Thanks for having me. Paul, are we done or, or do you, uh, <laughs> I kind of didn't give you a chance here. Oh yeah. No, I think we're good. Okay. Gina, it's been awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks guys. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. Yep. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Did I mention that was a video newsletter and that Dr. Stuart Brigham might uh, be making a guest appearance? Just a floating head this time. (laughs) Floating head, Stuart Brigham. Hmm. We're also committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a topic and tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Stuart Kent Brigham, doctor. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and I remain Paul Williams. Oh, hello, Paul. I forgot about you. <laughs> <laughs>